Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest today is uh, Andrew Grotto. He's uh, from the William J. Perry International Security Institute. He's a fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute, and he's also a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. Uh, both are located at Stanford University. He's also a fellow at the Stanford Cyber Initiative. So, Andy, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Rich. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so uh, tell me about your work. You know, you're a fellow at multiple institutes. What, what's your main focus of uh of the work that you look at? I'm, I'm interested in the intersection between uh, information technology, governance, and uh, national security. So where decisions that gov- governments make, businesses make about technology has uh, either uh, national security implications for the United States or uh, bigger sort of global foreign policy uh, questions around uh, trade and, and how to approach um, dealing with some of the both benefits and risks of, of these technologies. So what are some examples that governments have uh, implemented recently, you know, whatever government it is, that either worked out really well or worked out terribly? So there there are, um, so on the one hand, you could argue that, uh, you know, governments leaving uh, technology alone, right, not, not stepping in with uh, legislative or uh, policy intervention, um, that that restraint is actually a, a, a good thing, right? It's allowed innovation to unfold. It's um, given space for investors and, and inventors to uh, uh, be creative and, and, and explore the boundaries of, of, of engineering and, and in some cases even physics. Um, you know, it's not to say that that intervention isn't uh, you know um, warranted in certain cases. So uh, you know, right now in the United States. Is, is the enforcement action fair? Um, is it, you know, 
how much of it is, is colored by actual misconduct by a company versus a uh, you know a reflexive suspicion of technology, and especially U.S. technology companies that we see in certain quarters uh, in, in Europe. Um, on the other hand, yeah, I think what we're likely to see is, uh, on the one hand, um, you know, big, large companies who have the resources to develop, uh, uh, you know, compliance regime will we'll, we'll do just fine under GDPR um, mm -hmm. and may actually be able to use GDPR as a source of competitive advantage against upstart uh, who don't necessarily have the resources and the sophistication putting together internal compliance and controls that larger, uh, more experienced companies in their management do. Uh, I also think that we will see, and we're already starting to see some of this, uh, even here in the United States, uh, a, a growing uh, push for something roughly comparable in the United States uh, at the federal level. Um, right. You know, I, you know what, what GDPR really does for the, the politics here in the United States is First, it sort of you know creates this perception that you know there's this yawning gap between the protections that Europeans have versus Americans. Uh, second is that because companies, large companies, are already complying with GDPR, the costs they have to invest in complying with something in the U.S. are would, would be lower, right? So that political um, uh, you know, push that political drive to try to kill a legislative initiative may not be as strong, right? Because companies have already kind of baked it into their into their uh, compliance efforts. And then the third factor that I think is interesting here is that companies, you know, big, especially American tech companies, may actually even see affirmative uh, value from a marketing perspective in being able to point to the U.S. privacy law as a way to reinforce uh, their customers who are located, you know, maybe located in dozens of countries around the world, to reinforce their trust in uh, U.S. technology and um, the, 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 you know, the way that, um, that U.S. companies treat uh, private data. So I think those, those three things together are going to make a legislative path in the Congress far more likely than I think most people realize uh, that by the bet, I think we'll probably see in this country a major push in the next Congress. So after the midterms, you know, see that over the next three-ish years, uh, a major push for, uh, for privacy legislation that won't just be dead on arrival. Well, I mean, if you're saying it seems to it favors larger companies and smaller ones can't afford to comply, I mean, that's a bad thing in my yeah. mind, or do you think that's a good thing? No, I think it's a problem. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I think that, that that's a policy problem. Um, it, it, but you know, it does have this effect on uh, the underlying political economy um, and the mix of you know of, of political interests that um, lobbyists and members of Congress and others will bring to the debate in the United States around privacy. But I, I, I agree. I think that um, you know, that at any time you know we have you know a set of laws that 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 you know burden uh, smaller innovators, we we obviously put um, innovation at, at risk uh, to some extent. Well, what's your role? I mean, do you see your role as being a champion of fair legislation, or do you, yeah, yeah, you know, you're just yeah, an observer, think, or what? What do you want to do? No, I, 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 so I think there, there's, you know, a need for some thought leadership around what, what does a, a distinctly American approach to privacy look like? We, we, we have a pretty long tradition here already of, of, of privacy law. Um, we, we, you know, there isn't a sort of baseline, comprehensive federal statute. 
around privacy in the United States. Uh, the way that, that we as a, as a country have approached privacy is on a more sector by sector basis. So, you know, there, there's a, a law for healthcare called HIPAA uh, that, you know, covers that category of data, you know, financial data is subject to a different set of laws and so on and so forth. There, there, there's not a single sort of comprehensive uh, baseline uh, uh, legal framework that kind of stitches this all together. And that's where I think we'll see movement. Um, so from my perspective, you know, um, providing thought leadership around what an American approach to privacy looks like that is both um, meaningful in the sense that it, you know, affords consumers uh, real privacy, um, but also, um, you know, you know, puts U.S. companies as all all shapes and sizes in an even stronger position to compete um, internationally and also preserve the trust of uh, their customers here at home as we sort of you know, kind of go through this this so-called tech lash um, that we've seen unfold in Washington since um, since last year. Yeah, I was going to say, what what do you think that is going to be the role of Facebook and Google and these gigantic companies? I mean, they're you know the irony is it's going <clears> to <throat> probably bring upon us privacy laws that will favor them, and they're the ones that appear to have caused it and abused uh, people's trust more than anyone. So there's yeah, I think there's an interesting question here around um, obviously you know how you know how different companies respond to this or that proposal it depends a lot on the substance of the proposal um, I, I think it's you know we it's always risky to sort of lump tech into one single monolithic category um, so obviously you know Facebook and Google are uh, you know hugely influential and uh, both by virtue of you know their their success, but also the, the extent to which their products have sort of you know, penetrated our, our lives. Um, they're not the only companies out there with a stake in in this debate, and uh, you know both and, and resources, both you know intellectual and otherwise, to bring to bear. So I, I think we'll see that this this debate sort of break into maybe maybe three categories. One is companies whose business models are heavily reliant upon monetizing consumer data, right? So there, there you get into you know Facebook and, and Google to varying degrees. Second right. category of companies who who, do, who don't use data in the same way, um, you know, who you know are 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 in the business of collecting data, but either they're more enterprise focused or you know they have a different approach to, to how they interact with their customers. So I would put companies like Apple, Microsoft, uh, you know, and others in that category. And I think there's this third category of, of which is kind of a catch-all um, that covers companies who are to varying degrees either in the Internet of Things business or uh, soon will be. So th these are basically companies that are increasingly information technology companies but don't realize it yet. And um, you know, you know, so that 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 that's a um, that's a bit of a wild card here um, around privacy. Um, the governments here here in the United States. Well, other issues, um, you know, voting seems to have been uh, problematic, you know, over the past few elections. Any initiatives there, or any changes there coming that you think are going to make voting more secure, or is it just going to be a continual debate? I so you know, Congress passed legislation earlier this year to pump some resources into um, state coffers for uh, bolstering elections. Uh, you know, one one sort of background point that, that's important to kind of bear in mind when we talk about elections is that
elections in the United States are administered uh, at a local level. Uh, you know, the, the, these are, you know, the responsibility of, you know, cities, counties, states, not necessarily the federal government, which historically has not had a major role in, in, in elections, um, or should, I should say in the actual administration of elections. So what we're really talking about here is shoring up the ability of state and local governments to, uh, to, con to, to conduct uh, an election. Uh, part of that is, you know, in some cases, uh, you know, more modern equipment that can be patched without having to, you know, essentially pull it apart. Uh, but oftentimes it's a question of, of, of human capital. Um, you know, since we're talking about state and local governments, we're talking about, you know, governments that, that for, you know, the better part of, you know, 10 years since the financial crisis have been, uh, for, for, for the most part, uh, you know, pretty cash-strapped and uh, not able to make a lot of investments, uh, including in the administration of elections. Um, you know, the, 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 you know the, the same people who may be responsible for uh, administering a voter registration database may have a myriad other completely unrelated responsibilities simply because uh, that's how their budget situation sort of, you know, pushed them along. The, the money that the Congress provided will, will, will help over, you know, the medium to long term. Um, the, the, the good news about this sort of structure of election administration is that, you know, the fact that it's um, decentralized is actually, uh, on some level, a source of resilience. So you think about what an adversary would have to do to change votes at scale. They'd have to, you know, essentially conduct numerous simultaneous attacks and go undetected. Uh, that's, that's, that's not impossible, but it's, it's much harder than if there were a single sort of nationwide voter registration database that, that an adversary could break into and achieve effects at scale. Um, the flip side of that, right, is that um, we're, we're reliant upon uh, state and local governments who have limited budgets, limited human capital. And I think what I worry about most is, you know, not so much changing a vote, although I, you know, I don't want to discount that risk, um, yeah. but I think that really the, the, the bigger risk is either a perception of uh, a, an, an insecure election or even one anomaly in some isolated, you know, as an isolated incident that then gets picked up in social media or even amplified purposefully by Russian trolls as evidence that our political system is corrupt and that there's, you know, in fact, you know, um, a much bigger set of issues than, than people realize, which of course would be false, um, but um, the goal would be less to you know, change a vote or change an outcome and more to, you know, undermine uh, the American people's confidence in their democratic institutions. What's, um, what do you think are the biggest levers on influencing policy in the right way in government? You know, uh, without giving away any secret sauce or anything, what, uh, what have you seen works versus doesn't? So it really depends on who or what institution is the target. Um, I find, you know, so I... I before I got to Stanford um, last September, I worked, um, you know, at the White House in both the Trump and the Obama administrations. I worked in uh, the Commerce Department uh, for uh, President Obama's Commerce Secretary, Penny Pritzker, as her senior advisor for technology policy. I worked on Capitol Hill and, and in the Senate, and, you know, so I've sort of been on the receiving end of, of, of you know, hundreds of, of, of attempts to influence over the years uh, from each of these different perspectives uh, or institutional homes. and. More often than not, um, what you know, what 
what, what matters most is having a really strong argument grounded in fact. Um, you know, that people kind of, it's easy to lose sight of how important it is to, you know, to, to argue on that basis in this political environment we're in today. But, um, you know, in a lot of ways, it's even more important today to, to I think, hew to that principle. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that, 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 you know, that someone is persuaded, but at least, you know, um, you know, someone who's trying to shape a debate uh, can maximize their influence. So, you know, there are a couple different ways to, you know, from my perspective as an academic, you know, my, my, my job is to, you know, my goal is to try to contribute to sort of the, the broader kind of intellectual uh, debate and environment around uh, this broad issue set. Um, you know, I, I have enough experience in national security policy from my government days and in, in, in technology governance more generally to sort of both know where a lot of skeletons are buried and also um, have a pretty good instinct for the kinds of arguments that work and uh, just as important, you know, how to time those arguments to be maximally uh, effective for a given uh, audience, whether that's, you know, Congress, whether that's the White House, whether that's uh, the media or uh, other other people in academia who may have their own influence channel. Mm. Any so any important uh, initiatives coming up that you're working on or you're at least watching that you think are going to be very super important, like the GDPR or something yeah, similar I in think, the U.S. Um, yeah, I think um, there, there are a few. So you know, one is um, there, there's this phenomenon that that um, you know. It's, it's, Becoming a little more well known outside of sort of technology circles uh, of fake videos, so-called deep fakes. Um, these are you know videos that are essentially um, generated through machine learning algorithms that um, can uh, mimic uh, an individual uh, you know with with, with increasingly uh, breathtaking uh, uh, accuracy. Um, and then when you combine the ability to make fabricated video with you know, pretty well-established technologies to um, copy people's voices. You know, you end up with a suite of technologies that can be used to essentially create a fake video and, 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 and literally put words um, in someone's mouth that they never uttered. Um, and, you know, I, I would encourage, you know, folks to, to if you haven't seen these before, uh, if you just go to, uh, you know, YouTube and just search for deep fakes, um, you'll get lots of examples. Uh, there's one. Is it deep that, deep state? Deep, sorry, deep fake. Deep fake. fake video. So can you deep fake? Deep. Okay. Can you talk more about that? What are they exactly? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So um, so there's a bunch of research teams around the world who are who are working on developing the ability to take uh, you take take video footage of you say your President Obama and uh, you know, use that video essentially um, to, to train uh, a machine learning algorithm to then produce new videos uh, of President Obama that, that the author of the video can effectively control. So think of it almost like um, animation or CGI, except with like real video, not, not computer generated uh, animation. Um, and so, you know, what, what, what um, and if you if you so if you go to YouTube and you, you search, uh, there's a, a team that um, has a, it's partly a tiered stamper. There, there are a few other teams who are doing work on this. You'll you'll, you'll see lots of examples if you search for them. Um, but imagine being able to take a video of of um, you know say you know, Vladimir Putin, right? And mm -hmm. uh, a 
imagine being able to, uh, you know, fabricate a video of him in some compromised situation, and then right. being able to feed the video audio of the author's choosing. So for perhaps, you know, Vladimir Putin confessing to all sorts of, you know, corrupt, awful things. Um, that that technology is, I mean, we're we're basically there today. It's not it's not perfect, but it soon will become um, impressive and seamless enough where we'll see, um, you know, uh, sort of a Photoshop equivalent for videos where you can basically manipulate uh, and create videos um, as though you were, you know, doctoring a photo. It's incredible. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Sort of, what, what are the, uh, what are they going to do to try to counteract this stuff? What can you do? Well, so, you know, so it's worth, you know, taking a step back and, you know, sassy sort of like, what's, what's driving investment in this technology? And the, the answer is Hollywood, basically, right? So, if you think think about um, you know um, you know a movie director right post productions going you know going through the video going through their their footage and like they see a scene where man I wish that you know we had had Brad Pitt's head tilted just so at this light and the director's got to decide whether you know she wants to just live with the scene or reassemble the cast and crew rebuild the set at an expense of, you know, millions and millions of dollars and, and reshoot that scene. But what this what this fake this, this fake video technology does is actually potentially allow her just to create the scene using a machine learning algorithm and not have to go through all and not have to be be forced into that to that 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 trade off. Um, you could also you know another application um, you know is uh, dubbing a foreign language film. So you know instead of having the awkward you know, uh, you know, English language dub over the foreign film where the lips don't correspond to the, you know, the dub, um, you could actually uh, use this technology, uh, you know, in the future to get the lips to move with the, uh, the dub language, which is a pretty, would be a pretty extraordinary um, feat, right? Uh, yeah, it would open up, you know, it would open up film um, to, you know, vast new audiences where, Right now, it may not be economical to, to double, up, you know, say an English language film into, you know, pick your obscure language, right? Uh, but with this technology, you could actually potentially reach, you know, far more audiences um, in their native tongue, which would be great for the, for the film industry. So that, that, that's, the, that's the positive side, you know, obvious benefits. But the other downside is, uh, you know, this, this technology can also be used for all sorts of, of, of awful things. So... Um, you know, from cyberbullying, um, you know, we've already seen examples of of people who will find, you know, pornography on the internet and superimpose celebrities, uh, you know, face on the actress. And it's usually women who are depicted. So they're, you know, so there's a, an especially kind of, you know, uh, you know, insidious, uh, you know, use here. Mm. Um, and you think about, okay, so, you know, putting my national security hat on, um, you know, imagine if, um, in the midterm election, you know, someone created a fake video of, you know, of President Obama endorsing, you know, all the Republican candidates, right? Um, that would, that would, you know, that would probably go viral. Uh, it would take a few days or at least maybe, maybe a few hours for the media and others to realize the video is fake. But, you know, the reality is the way people consume news is the correction would be missed on a lot of people. By a lot of people, right? Um, and even if it were corrected, you know, the impression has been conveyed that you know it's okay to vote for these candidates if you were thinking about. Uh, well, we're still since Obama's former President Obama, not President Obama. If President yeah. Trump was depicted right. in such a way, 
That would be uh, yeah, yes, yeah. literally probably a national security issue. Right. So yeah. So imagine him. You know, imagine a fake video of, of him. You know, get you know, going on TV and giving a speech about launching a nuclear conflict. I mean, you can, you can think of all the, you know, all sorts of you know crazy scenarios that turn out to not be so crazy because this technology is getting closer and closer to being uh, pretty pretty persuasive. Um, you can think about um, you know, uh, I mean, you know, in 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 uh, espionage tradecraft. Um, one of the ways that uh, intelligence services uh, recruit uh, foreigners to spy for them is through blackmail, um, and you know the Russians are particularly um, effective at this. And so what they'll do is they'll try to set someone up in a compromising position, and uh, you know then um, go back to that person with the evidence and say, look, you know we you know we have this evidence of you doing this. We'll share this with your spouse, with your government. We'll you know, put it on social media or whatever, unless you commit treason and spy for us. Um, and uh, that, that, that's a you know a part of part of the tradecraft. Well, you know, what this technology does is allow an adversary to just basically make up their own compromised material. Compromise is, is the Russian word you know for this uh, this compromised material. So you know imagine you know being able to, to use this 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 deep fake fake video um, technology to, to invent compromise. Right, and then all of a sudden, the person who you're trying to blackmail—yes, they didn't—they didn't commit the, the acts depicted in the video, um, but you know, it's a pretty—I mean, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. What's a video worth, right? It's hard. It's, be, it's hard to, you know, it might be hard for someone to persuade uh, the media or their friends and family or their government that what's depicted in the video is in fact false. And so now that individual has again, they're, they're faced with this choice: do do I? Do I spy um, and have this material kept secret, or do I, you know, say no to the spying, but then, you know, put myself through this very public spectacle of having to, you know, um, argue down, you know, the, the truth, of, you know, or argue that this 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 fake video is in fact fake and not legitimate. Um, so yeah, so there's just you, know, you can sort of put your evil genius hat on. Um, there are a lot of you know malicious applications um, one could imagine uh, using this technology for and then the question obviously then is okay so what do we what do we do about it um, you know the answer you know depends on, on which which of these different problems uh, problem areas we want to solve and so for me I think what I probably worry the most about is the use of the technology and campaigns and elections and, and to essentially sow discord um, as part of an information operation by the Russians or whoever and I, you know, there's there's not really a technological silver bullet uh, for this technology. So, well, you know, what, we could say, well, why why couldn't why couldn't you know we develop or identify tells or signs and fake videos that you know basically you know show the video is fake? Well, the problem is that the same algorithms that um, you know you know you use to train um, you know the develop the video in the first place, you you simply train. The algorithm against the technology and the tells used to identify it. So you get in this kind of perpetual kind of arms race, right? Uh, where uh, the creator of fake video is always going to win. Um, so from my perspective, I, I think this is about norms of you know civic discourse and um, you know uh, politicians, uh, candidates, uh, you know uh, political elites should just simply say. And, and, and sort of enforce a norm of this, this technology being out of bounds um, in uh, an election campaign. Uh, yeah, definitely. Campaign. Well, also, too, I mean, elections where the stakes are 
possibly not as high, but the fakes really wouldn't have the, uh, the fakes would still have tremendous firepower and they'd probably be less called to try to, you know, investigate them or turn them over. I mean, it could be more insidious there. Right. Right. We know from recent uh, research on how information spreads on social media that the more sensational a uh, an item, uh, the more likely it is to go viral. Um, and so mm-hmm. e- e- even if it's demonstrably false, uh, you know, uh, sensational uh, items uh, tend to go uh, viral at a much higher rate than um, even true, uh, you know, um, true um, you know, stories or uh, articles, which is, which is pretty terrifying. Yeah, definitely. Well, very good. Um, I mean, we can, you know, go on and on and on. It sounds like there's a lot going on. But what's, um, you know, our time's up. What's, what's the best way to give some resources to listeners so they could find out maybe more about your work so that they can possibly at least be aware of the things that can happen to, uh, to cause them to misperceive reality? What do you recommend? Um, yeah, so, um, you know, you could find me on both the Hoover Institution and the Freeman Spogli Institute at Stanford uh, websites. Uh, easy enough to search my name. Um, you know, I've got uh, work that I've done um, recently on uh, the Russian cybersecurity company Kaspersky Labs and the kinds of challenges and, and then uh, responses that uh, the U.S. government has in its disposal. Uh, I've got some work coming out soon on uh, measuring the cost of cyber incidents, which I know is high on the mind of, of C-suite executives everywhere. Um, and then I've got some, some some work on this deep fake issue uh, with a colleague here at Stanford uh, by the name of Dan Bonet, who's uh, in, the, in the computer science department. Um, you know, sort of an example of computer science and policy coming together uh, here at Stanford. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, so um, you know, um, I you know, welcome uh, feedback. Uh, my email address is on the website. It's a way to contact me if, if you know listeners uh, have questions or thoughts they want to share up by welcome it. Very good, Andy. Well, thank you for coming on the call, and I, I appreciate all your insights. Thank you. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.